You turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, and uh, four of us men went down to the Shepherds Conference this past week, uh, uh, Danny Vasquez and um, Keith Moritz and uh, Jerry Rukob and myself, and we had a uh, great time down there. Just being blessed with some wonderful worship music as well as some incredible teaching and encouragement. And so if you get a chance, you can talk to one of those guys. And, and all those men uh, wanted me to make sure that we thank uh, someone who donated uh, about $1,500 scholarship money so some of these guys could go. And so we just want to thank uh, those who donated that money to, uh, uh, to allow them to go. And they really appreciate it. So you can quiz them on what they learned. But turn over to Matthew chapter 24, and uh, we're coming to a section here in Matthew in chapter 24. It's the Olivet Discourse, and we've been looking at this for a couple weeks now. And uh, last week we looked at the main event, which begins the tribulation, and uh, we just want to just want to share a little bit as far as introduction with you this morning before we actually get into our text. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 28 this morning. But it's an exciting thing to open the Word of God and know that you're looking at and, and studying the words of Christ. These, this is a sermon that Christ himself preached about his own second coming. And he preached it in response to the disciples who asked him a question. And we're going to be looking at that. Uh, but if it's the first time here... You're going to be a little bit behind, so I encourage you to go online and get the messages and try to catch up, but um, we've covered a lot of ground and we've got a lot more to cover. So, But today we're continuing to look at the coming Great Tribulation, and uh, we've already moved up to and through verse 15 of Matthew 24, and so I just want to read for us uh, the, the text for us this morning, Matthew chapter 16, or 15, 24. Verses 16 to 28. Matthew 24, verses 16 to 28. You can follow along in your Bibles. I'll begin in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, in verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not to turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women... Who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And in those days, had not, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. But if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We've moved up to this certain portion of the text. And there's one thing, when you start to talk to people, it doesn't matter whether they're believers or not, to be honest with you, about the second coming of Christ. There's something... I don't know if it's excitement or intrigue or dread, but people are definitely interested in that topic. When will the Lord return? The Apostle Paul says, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. As believers, we know what's coming down the pike. We know that this great tribulation will happen. And now we live in a time and an age where we live in the age of grace, where we can... We have the ability to take the word of God, the gospel, out to a lost and dying world and see men and women and children come to Christ, be converted through the power of God and the power of his word. 
So we present the gospel so that men may escape this coming tribulation. Paul also said we labor, whether present or absent, that we may, in a sense, be accepted by him. So whether you're talking to unbelievers and you want to motivate them to come to the Lord and you're talking about this terrible time, or you understand the second coming of Christ is going to be a time when you're going to be basically receiving your rewards for your faithfulness to the Lord, that we would be found faithful. The second coming of Christ, when it's spoken of, motivates people to action. Whether it's an unbeliever in fear of the dread that's coming or a believer in anticipation of that time when we'll stand before God and be rewarded according to the faithfulness of our ministry. And here in Matthew 24 and 25, the Lord himself basically is giving this sermon. And he's, we've studied before that how he spent his last day, this is basically Wednesday of Passion Week. Friday he will die. But he spent his last day in Jerusalem speaking to the crowds of Israel and he literally pronounced judgment on Israel. He told them that their house will be left desolate and that they have rejected him, therefore he is rejecting them. And at the end of that day, he left the temple, went through the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of Olives, And he's preaching this sermon to his disciples. And this sermon is one of the longest answers that Jesus ever gave to one question. Look at verse 3, because they asked this question. They said, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And from that point on, Jesus begins to answer their question. And he does it all the way through chapter 25. Now, they don't realize, they don't understand that that Christ is going to come back thousands of years from now. They think it's going to happen right now. They just saw him go in and clean out the temple, get rid of all the money changers the day before. And now he's back and he was preaching in the temple. He pronounced judgment on Israel. And so they're thinking, wow, this is going to happen any time. And then as they're leaving the temple area, they looked around and they said, boy, look at the vastness of this temple. It's huge. I mean, these rocks that they build this thing with are massive. Millions and millions and millions of tons of rock. And Jesus says, yes, all these will not be laid one upon another when judgment falls. And they're thinking in their mind, you know what? He's going to come back to the temple and he's going to tear it down. That's what he's going to do. So they're kind of at the peak of their excitement. They're thinking, boy, this is, this is going to happen any day now. They don't see the church age as we know it, as we live in it today. They thought it was all going to happen at the same time. But that's not the case. And he predicts the total destruction of the temple in the beginning there of chapter 24. And some people say, well, how do you know that all the rest of this chapter isn't dealing with that same prophecy of the destruction of the temple. Well, it's pretty clear as we've studied through it, and we've given several reasons last week as well, why it's not just talking about the destruction of the temple. It's talking about things that are going to happen in the future. And none of these things really happened when the temple was destroyed because it was destroyed in 70 A.D. That's a fact in history. And so I'm thinking, you know what? Jesus brought that up. He put that temple destruction in there, that prophecy, because if you know anything about prophets, to be counted worthy to be a prophet, you can never be wrong, right? If I say I'm a prophet and I say, hey, next Wednesday it's going to snow, and next Wednesday comes and it doesn't snow, guess what? I'm a false prophet, right? I mean, I'm I'm not lining up with what I said would happen. Well, I think Jesus brought up this destruction of the temple prophesied, which happened actually in 70 A.D., Because he knew that his disciples would no longer be around when all this stuff happened in the tribulation. And so he's building his credibility. So he prophesies the destruction of the temple, which actually happened. And then he basically takes a leap all the way into the future, thousands of years, into the tribulation period. Because their question was twofold. When will this happen and when will be the end of the age? So the end of the age is going to happen when the Lord himself comes back in glory. 
And so he begins to answer this question in verse 4, and he goes all the way through the next chapter 25 to answer it. And so this isn't unlike uh, prophets in the Old Testament. A lot of times they would give a prophecy that might happen the next day or the next year or whatever, but then they'd also, part of the prophecy would be, be for hundreds of years in the future. And see, that gave them credibility. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. I mean, this temple, just so you understand the vastness of it, the temple was built from 20 to 10 B.C. That's just kind of the main building. There were 10,000 stonecutters and setters working on it for that 10 years. 10,000. Can you imagine? And that was just the one building, the main building. There was also 1,000 priests who were trained as stonecutters and carpenters because the priests had to be the ones who went into the sacred place and did that. So you had 10,000 workers and then 1,000 priests building the sacred parts of the temple. And that's just the main part. Well, the building went on from 10 B.C. to 64 A.D. So you're looking at an 84-year period year, period of time that they were building this project. Not just the main building, but all the other buildings that are surrounding it. And it finally reached its completion in 64 A.D. Now think about this. It was totally destroyed in 70 A.D. 80 years is undone in a matter of months. Now, if you stop and you think of the, that prophecy that Jesus gave back then, that would be like, I mean, in a way, somebody before 9-11 ever even happened saying, you know what? Somebody's going to fly planes into those buildings and they're going to come down and it's going to kill thousands of people. Years before it ever happened. then it actually happens, and you're going, whoa. (laughs) And it's a historical fact, and it happened exactly as Jesus said. No stone was left upon another. Josephus tells us that you could take a farmer's plow and plow from one end to Jerusalem to the next, because the whole city was just right down to the dirt. No one ever dreamed that something like that could happen. They thought, that's impossible. And yet it did. And when that was going on, remember I told you a couple weeks ago, the the Roman soldiers who were destroying Jerusalem were so moved, I think, and and really possessed by by Satan's powers himself. Even their, their leader told them, gave them an order to stop. Stop the destruction. It's enough. And they wouldn't stop. They just kept on slaughtering people and tearing down buildings. They were so fixated on its destruction. And so verse 2 really establishes the Lord's credential as a truthful prophet. And so they ask this question, what's the sign? When is this all going to end? And he gives us the main event in verse 15. And basically verses Four all the way up to 15 are what he calls birth pains. You're going to know what's going to happen when you start seeing these things start to take place. And we listed all those for you. False Christ and, and world disaster and economic strife. All sorts of things are going to happen during those times. And that's going to lead up to the coming of the Son of Man, the Son of God himself. But he gives them one extra point in verse 15, and this is what we looked at last week. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, and we talked about that in detail last week, that's the trigger. That's what's going to happen. Remember, we have a seven-year period of time that we're talking about in the tribulation. At the beginning of that seven-year period, this world leader rises up known as the Antichrist, and he gets into his position because of peaceful means. He promises peace and help to everybody who's looking for it because the world continually gets worse. So people are definitely looking for someone to come along and help them. And there's many people who are rising up saying, hey, I'll help you. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. But he rises above them all. And he is actually so deceptive that Israel themselves sign a pact, a treaty with this individual. 
because all the armies are mounted against Israel. And this one person stands up and he defeats all the armies of the world and he protects Israel. And they say, wow, that's what we need. Yeah, we'll sign, sign right on the dotted line. Goes on for three and a half years. In the middle of that three and a half year period, this is exactly what happens. When he's deceived everybody, he marches into the temple and he declares himself to be God. Desecrates the temple. And he demands that everyone worship him. And we looked at that last week. Well, today we want to look at what is the response to that? What are they supposed to do when that happens? Remember, Jesus is saying, you're going to notice all these things happening, but there's going to be one thing that start all these things. All these birth pains, all these things that we've been talking about are going to be triggered by one event. That's that abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist declares himself to be God and demands people worship him. That's why I skipped down to verse 16. It says, so when you see the abomination of desolation... Then, it says in verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We've established before that this text, when he's talking about you, 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 you do this, you do that, he's not talking about the disciples. They're they're going to be dead during this time. They're going to be gone. He's referring to those who are living during this tribulation period. And we've established the fact that they are Jews because they're from Judea. Plus, he tells them a little later on, we'll look at this, pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Well, he wouldn't say that to Gentiles. They don't care if it's the Sabbath or not, that they could flee. But in Judaism, you can only travel so far on the Sabbath. So we believe that he's talking to Jews who have actually embraced the Messiah. They've come to faith in Christ. And during this time, the Antichrist stands up and demands that he breaks that treaty with them and he demands that he be worshipped. Well, what is the response? When that happens, what is to be their response? And what he says very clearly there in verse 13, or verse 16, he says, let those who are in Judea what? Flee. Flee. This is the first point. The fleeing out of Judea. The fleeing out of Judea. Do you understand at this this point in time, two-thirds of Israel will be slaughtered? Two-thirds. One out of, of three will actually escape. And I think even on a broader scope, he even turns his his anger and his anguish against believers during this time as well. So it's not just those who are Jewish believers or those who are of Israel, but also those who who may be uh, Gentiles who turn to Christ. And he's turning his wrath against them. And I put some verses up there in Revelation, Zechariah. You can see, if you refer to those, you can see the different uh, plagues and things that are going to actually happen. It's going to be a horrible time. There's going to be death everywhere because this Antichrist is basically going to go after Israel, after God's chosen people, with a vengeance. And you know, that's nothing new, right? I mean, Satan has always been trying to squash out the nation of Israel. If he does that, well, then he can somehow sever the line of the Messiah and, well, upset God's plan. And we see that throughout history. Well, the first thing that's going to happen is he tells them, as soon as you see this individual, you hear this individual going into the temple, desecrating the temple and demanding worship, he says, flee, run. Don't wait. Don't stop. Don't hesitate. This guy has actually set up an image of himself, and he's in the temple, and it's a continuous thing. He doesn't go in, just desecrate it and leave. He's there, and he's demanding that people Worship them. Now remember, there's going to be pseudo-saviors that come. There's going to be rumors of war, wars, nations against nations, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. We've talked about all that. 
and people will be delivered into persecution to be killed and to be hated. That's what is coming. There'll be betrayals, there'll be false prophets, there'll be deceivers. Sin is going to run rampant. Remember, during this time, the church is no longer here. We're gone. We're raptured out of here. God's restraining power of the Holy Spirit is no longer here through the church. And Satan's counterfeit king becomes the king of the world. He's demon-possessed and hell-inspired. He hates Christ with a passion. He defies God's power. He kills Jews and Christians. He wants to rule and reign and take over the world. And he basically pulls out all the stops at this point to use his forces to go out after the Christians and Jews and the nation of Israel and to stop Jesus Christ from establishing his kingdom here on earth. So we're not going to be there, praise God. Amen. If you're a Christian here today, you know, you're going to be in glory with the Lord. And maybe we can look at next week, we'll look at some people say, well, what's the difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ? We're going to look at that next week. But we're looking forward to a time when the Lord takes us out. The Bible says he comes down in the clouds and he catches us away as his people. And we go back to be with him in glory. And then we return with him at the end of this tribulation period. So the Lord has given us a very clear picture. But in verses 16 to 28, he begins to warn them. He warns them. He he wants them to know what their response should be to this abomination of desolation. And he says, by all means, run. You know, don't hang around and get martyred. Just run. That's the whole idea here. Flee. Get out of there. Because as long as you stay in Jerusalem, as long as you're within reach of this maniac that set himself up to be worshipped, your, your life is threatened. So the Antichrist takes over Jerusalem. He sets his throne right up there in Jerusalem and basically begins to slaughter anybody that he can. Revelation chapter 13 says that he wants to make war with the saints. In Revelation chapter 12, he goes on and he says that he wants to wipe out Israel. And so the command here is very clear. The response, when you see the abomination of desolation and you're there in Judea, run. Run out of there as fast as you can. Not everybody's going to make it. Zechariah 13.8, last, next last book in the Old Testament, tells us, chapter 13, verse 8, it says, And it shall come to pass that in the land, says the Lord, two parts and it shall be cut off and die. Not all the Jewish people are going to make it out of there. Two-thirds are going to be killed. It's going to be a terrible slaughter. You can stack up all the holocausts in world history, and it's not going to be anything like what's coming. Verse 9 says, A third part will be spared and refined and kept by God. So Zechariah says not all the Jews are going to make it. Two-thirds of them are going to be slaughtered. And in Revelation chapter 6, when this world leader, probably out of the European Union or whoever he may be, takes over and he demands that he be worshipped, the Jews are going to perish. But also, Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 tells us, When the fifth seal is opened, under the altar are the souls of those that were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. Revelation 6, 9. So here are believers, here are Christians, Gentiles or Jews, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter, but out of the tribulation time, they have been martyred for their faith in Christ. They didn't escape either. They got martyred. They lost their lives. Verse 10, it says, How long, O Lord, how long until you avenge our blood on them that dwells on the earth? It says, and the white robes were given to every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. In other words, hey, things are just getting started. There's going to be a lot more people that die. 
And he says, and your fellow servants and your brethren have to be killed. That's part of the fulfillment. That's part of martyrdom. So Zechariah sees Jews being killed. Revelation sees Christians being killed. Not all are going to escape. Chapter 11 talks about, Revelation chapter 11 talks about 7,000 people dying in the city of Jerusalem through an earthquake. Twelve eleven says that there's going to be martyrs who love not their lives unto death. See, some are betraying Christ. Some are betraying Christ. Some are denying him rather than dying. And there are some who don't love their lives that much. They're willing to die for the testimony of Christ. And they will. Revelation 13, 7 tells us that he makes war with the saints and overcomes them. Once again, you see the martyrdom going on. Chapter 17, verse 6 of Revelation pictures false religious system of that day, drunk, it says, with the blood of the martyrs. In other words, the blood is flowing so freely from the martyrdom of Christians in the Jewish nation that they're literally drunk on it. So all of this begins when this abomination of desolation is set up. The Antichrist becomes the ruler of the world. He's energized by Satan. He's assisted by his demonic hosts. And he moves against Israel. And they have to run for their lives. And only a third of them make it. Now look over at Revelation 12. Revelation 12, because this gives us kind of an uh, illustration or image. This is, this is a chapter, it talks about the woman and the dragon and a child. There's a woman there, there's a child there, there's a dragon. The woman is Israel. Okay, that's who the woman is. The child is who? Christ. And then it describes this dragon who is Satan himself. And it says that basically, if you read through that, it per- he persecutes the woman. And he wants to kill the child. He wants to kill Christ. And in verse 7, it says that Michael comes and defends them. Michael fights the demons. And Michael prevails, it says in verse 8. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. It goes on, it says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant who is called the devil and Satan. So Michael is the victor. In verse 6, it kind of ties this together. It says here, prophetically, it says, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Who is the woman? Israel. During this time, when all this persecution is going to be going on in the, in the latter half of the tribulation, the Bible Jesus warns them, flee. As soon as you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Run for your lives and go and hide. And you know what? There's a lot of places to hide in Israel. There's a lot of desert places. There's a lot of caves. There's caves everywhere. And he's basically telling them, just just go to the, the mountains and flee. Flee Jerusalem. So you're out of the reach of this crazy man that's going to kill everybody. And it says in verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness... Look at this, where she has a place prepared by who? By God. By God. See, God makes provision for his people. Doesn't matter whether it's in this time in the future or for us even today. God makes provision for his people. And it says that God prepared a place in the wilderness for Israel to flee to. And then it says, in which she is to be nourished for how many days? 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation period, 42 months. That's always the time period for this great tribulation that we're talking about. The last half of the tribulation is called the great tribulation, and it's always three and a half years. Always. Because it's in the middle of seven years, and that's where it begins with the, desol- the uh, abomination of desolation. So from that point on, 
He says, as soon as you see that in the midpoint, hey, you guys need to run for the hills and hide yourselves. God will protect you. God will take care of you. Verse 14, it says there, But the woman, Israel, was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to a place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, a time is one year, times is two years, and a half a time, three and a half years. Same, same amount of time, 42 weeks, 1,260 days. The Bible is very exact in this. So somehow, these people who are fleeing are going to be enabled by, one commentator believes maybe it's even Michael, the, the angel himself, literally picks these people up and flees them to where they need to go so they can get away from this, this maniac who wants to slaughter them. Who knows? Michael is the protector of God's people. Somehow God supernaturally protects them. He transports them out there in the wilderness where they can't be found. And he feeds them, by the way. It says they're nourished there. So for three and a half years, supernaturally, Michael and his angels are going to deliver God's people into a place of safety and a place of protection away from this this crazy man. That's only one third of them. Two thirds of them are going to die. Now, go back to Matthew 24. Because as they're fleeing out of Judea, we see here, first of all, the suddenness in which this tragedy happens. The suddenness in which the tragedy happens. Look at what it says in verse 16. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, just run. And then he gives some illustrations. He says in verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop. You say, well, what's that mean? Well, over there in Israel, even today, they have, I think in Hawaii they call them a lanai, but over there it's just like a patio. And most of the houses, they'll have rooms and stuff, and then they'll have a flat portion. And they'll have stairs going up to there, and they have you know, meals up there, and they congregate up there at night in the cool of the night and everything. And it's just kind of a social area in the house. And it's kind of on top of the house. It's a patio on top of the house. And so he says... The one who is on the housetop or out there on the patio, when you see this thing happen, when this abomination of desolation happens, don't even go back into your house and grab anything. That's how imperative it is that you flee immediately because of the impending slaughter that's going to happen. He says, don't go back to your house and take what's in there. Just let it go. It's not important. Your life's important. You've got to run. And then verse 18, look at what he says. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. The idea is the guy's out there plowing in the field, probably in the heat of the day, takes his coat off, maybe sets it at one area and he's on the other end of the field, but his coat's back there where he began. And it says, you know what? Don't even go back and get it. Even though it's an important piece of, of their garment, let it go. You don't have time. This is going to happen so suddenly. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And then look at this in verse 19. This is interesting. And it says, Woe or alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. You see the, 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 the suffering here that will occur during this time. You have to understand, some, some people say, well, what this is referring to is, you know, it's hard to run a pregnant woman. Um, I'll have to ask Carrie, you know. <laughs> a pregnant woman, it's tough, all right? Um, or if you're nursing a child, it's hard to move quickly. Some commentators say, well, that's what it's referring to. But it's interesting because the, the, the Greek literally in verse 19 says, woe unto those women having something in the stomach who were pregnant, the ones who were nursing. John MacArthur brought out an interesting point. I want you to turn back to Hosea. Hosea.
13th chapter of Hosea. Hosea looks at the end and it talks about the salvation of Israel and bringing back Israel and God will bring about judgment on those who have judged Israel and so forth. But look at verse 16. I thought this was interesting. He points this out. It says, Samaria, Hosea chapter 13, verse 16. Hosea, uh, Samaria has, shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. And then look at what it says. Their little ones, or their infants, shall be what? Dashed into pieces. And their pregnant women ripped open. I mean, what a horrible scene. So when God comes to bring his judgment against his rebellious people, God comes to restore, he first must purge. And it says that they, verse 16, they'll fall by the sword there. But their infants will be dashed, cut into pieces. Now stop and think about this. When Satan tried to stop the birth of Christ, what did he do? Remember? Killed all the, all the babies. Killed all the kids. The male children. Even when Satan wanted to kill the prophet of God like Christ, Moses, what did he do? Killed all the children. Killed all the babies. So it's not going to be any different during this period of time. And, and I think what Jesus is saying, man, I just hope you're not pregnant during this time. I hope you don't have a baby during this time because you're probably going to lose it. It's probably going to be slaughtered. Horrible day. And that's just the evil that Satan is going to be controlling the world and, and the church is not going to be here. There's not going to be any restraining influence from God on earth at all as far as the church is concerned. And so sin is just going to run rampant. I mean, think of the, the unborn children that are slaughtered every day in our country, and it's okay. It's legal. I mean, that just boggles my mind that someone would take an innocent child and literally cut it into pieces before it's even able to take its first breath. Well, that's what it says. It says that's going to happen. And then verse 20, it says, you better pray that it's not the, in the winter. In other words, it's, it's hard to run when it's snowing out, and they get snow over there. You're going to be having to go on out in the hills. You don't want it to be cold and snowy when this happens. You better pray it's not during that time. Or you better pray it's not on the Sabbath. That's why I think he's speaking specifically to Jews here. Because even now, over in Israel, if you go over there in certain parts of the city, on the Sabbath, if you were to walk and run through certain parts of the city, literally, the, the, the Jews who are, are very devout, they'll throw stones at you. Literally. That's what they do. Even to this day, the Orthodox Jews. So he's saying, hey, you better hope it's not on the Sabbath, because if you're in, in Jerusalem, it's going to be tough for you to get out of there. Because you can only travel so far. That's part of the rules, the regulations. You'll get in trouble if you don't. And then he talks about the severity in verse 21. He says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. There's nothing like this that we've ever seen. You, you, you pile up all the holocausts of human history, and it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming around the bend. There's going to be people dying from famines and earthquakes and pestilences as well as being slaughtered by the Antichrist. I mean, it's going to be not the time to be here, beloved. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 basically describes that portion of, of it for us. First of all, remember you have the seals that are opened up and all these judgments come out and then the, the trumpets are opened up and then the, the bowls are poured out 
And it kind of all escalates. It continues to escalate. It gets worse and worse and worse. Three, these three and a half years of the second seven or of the seven years is going to be a, a bad time to be here. People will be dying all over the place. It's going to be very severe. But look at what it says in verse 22. It says, And if those days had not been cut short, Now, you might look at that and say, well, now, wait a minute. You just got done telling us that the Great Tribulation, the second half of those seven years is always 42 months. It's always 1,260 days. It's always three and a half years. How can they cut it short? That would mess the whole thing up, right? I mean, every time the Bible speaks of this Great Tribulation, this second half of this Seven years, it's always three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. Always. There's no place that makes it any shorter than that. This word, shortened, here, could also mean stopped instantly. It immediately ends. It quickly stops. And it says there, unless it was terminated fast, even the elect would be devastated. Notice it it refers to a period of time here. It doesn't refer to one day. It's talking about a period of time. It says those days. Those 24-hour days, you might say. Except those 24-hour days in this, in this period of time, unless they're shortened, everybody's going to be wiped out. Well, we've seen last week and the week before, I think, when this abomination of desolation occurs, people start running for their lives, Jews and believers They're trying to get away from this holocaust of the Antichrist. And God supernaturally, I think by His divine mercy and grace, He's literally going to alter the length of daylight in a 24-hour period in order to give them protection of darkness. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Show this to you. You say, where do you get that at? Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became what? Black as sackcloth. And the full moon became like what? Blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Verse 14. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Darkness. Darkness begins to fall. Chapter 8, verse 12. The first set of judgments in the seals there. Revelation 8, 12, it says, The fourth... The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck. A third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So that, it says, a third of their light might be what? Darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. So somehow, God is going to supernaturally change the length of days. I mean, you know, we're, we're here today, and we're... We're, we have, uh, what, daylight, what's it called? Savings time, I guess. What's it, begin or end, whatever. You turn, spring forward, that's all I know. Okay. Well, in this time, God is going to supernaturally cause darkness to fall upon the face of the earth. At least a third more than it does normally. So that these poor people have a chance to escape in the darkness. 
Chapter, Revelation chapter 16, verse 10 says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the, of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. See, what's happening from the abomination of desolation onward, God is, it's like a dimmer switch. He's turning the lights out. Slowly. And it says there, except those days themselves be shortened, there nobody that would, would, would be saved at all. Because it's such a horrific time. And he, the Antichrist is so dead set on, on just slaughtering everybody. It's only the protection of night and daylight being shut off that saves God's people. And that's what it says back to Matthew 24. It says, for the sake of who? The elect. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Here, I think specifically, it's referring to Israel. Israel is, he calls them my elect people. I don't think even secular historians would argue with the fact that history shows us that God laid his hand upon this nation, Israel. God affirms that he elected that nation. And he's going to keep a remnant. He, he spares one-third of them so that he can redeem them and bring them into the kingdom. Not all the Jews are going to die, just two-thirds of them during this time. Romans 9 and 11 talks about Israel as an elected nation. But I think it also refers not just to Israel, but even, even believers. Because as believers, we are definitely the elect of God, aren't we? That's what Scripture says. And so for the sake of preserving His elect nation and for the sake of preserving any who are believing in, in the Christ during this time, His redeemed people, He shortens the days and allows them a little extra darkness so that they can flee. I learned this this past week. It's kind of interesting. Did you know this is the first time in the New Testament that the word elect is used? So we're introduced to a new concept about those who belong to God. I mean, why do we belong to God? This is an interesting conversation to have. You can go down this rabbit trail real quick. I don't want to, but I just want to touch on it. Why do we belong to God? Why are we God's elect? Elect, the word itself means to choose or to call out. The Bible clearly says that he chose us. He chose Israel. He chose us, those who are followers of Christ. I mean, it's not like God went out in times past and said, anybody want to follow me? Put your hands up. Anybody at all? And the nation of Israel said, ah, yeah, maybe we will. I think we will. We're okay. That's not how it happened. The Bible, beloved, says that even before the foundations of the world, Ephesians tells us, that we were elect, that we were chosen by God himself. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am thankful every time I lay my head on my pillow at night for the doctrine of election. I can go to bed, have a peaceful sleep, knowing that, you know what, it wasn't me that chose God. It was God that chose me. Wow. What an incredible truth. And I know he didn't choose me because I could play the piano or that I was going to try to teach the Bible or try to be a good husband. That's not why he chose me because you know what? It says in the Bible that he chose me before the foundation of the world. Last time I checked, I wasn't around then. 
So God divinely set his love upon me even before there was a me. Think about that. That'll keep you up. (laughs) What's my point? My point is this. He says, I'm going to take care of my elect. He's going to take care of his elect. He takes care of the elect. I mean, if he didn't do this, nobody would survive to go into the kingdom. There wouldn't be any redeemed Jews. There wouldn't be any Christians at all. When God chooses someone for himself, I really believe the Bible says that he will keep that person for himself and he will fulfill his promise. Even if he has to move literally heaven and earth to do it. Because that's what he's doing here. He's making the days shorter. How is he going to do that? Who knows? He's God. The Lord will literally reorganize the entire body of the universe just to protect the elect during this time. That's why the darkness happens at the end. He's ramping it up. A third of it's going to be gone, and then it's slowly, throughout this three and a half years, eventually it's going to be dark. But he's going to protect his elect. So he says here, basically that I'm going to shorten these days for the sake of those who are following me. Now, he also gives us a second warning, not just to flee and run, but in verse 23, he gives us a warning of, be careful about false reports of messiahs, false messiahs, little m, coming around during these days. Remember, Israel... And the believers are running to the mountains. They're supernaturally being even transported there somehow. And God is protecting them. He's caring for them. He's feeding them. And yet, the Antichrist, Satan, is so devious, he wants to draw them out. Well, what's the one way he could draw them out? Hey, the Messiah just came. See, that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the Son of God to come. That's the idea here. Everything's ramping up. Until that time when Jesus Christ literally comes back to earth. And so during this time, it says in verse 23, If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. I don't know how they're going to do this, but I bet you the Antichrist is just going to send out his dominion force out into the wilderness. Hey, the Messiah has come back. Come on out. Ollie, Ollie, in free. (laughs) And he says, don't listen to it. He says in verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise. And they're not only going to arise, they're not only going to say there he is, but they're actually going to be able to perform great signs and wonders through demonic power somehow. They're going to be able to do supernatural works. And it says, so as to lead astray. See, they want to deceive people. That's the whole thrust here. They're trying to be somebody they're not. And it says there, the reason there simply is because, you know what, all these, there's going to be a kind of an air of deception. And the responsibility that we have is that we don't believe it. Don't believe these people. It says there, so as to lead astray even the elect, if possible. You say, well, is it possible to lead the elect astray? Is that possible? If that's possible, then basically you would be saying that God chose you, you're saved, but somebody could lead you astray, so then you could be unsaved. Of course it's not possible. That's why he puts in there, if possible. The deception is going to be so strong 
that even the elect would doubt, if possible. In other words, it's not possible. The Bible clearly teaches once you're saved, once you've bowed your knee to Christ, once he's filled you with the Holy Spirit, the deposit of our salvation, the security deposit, it says that we, we have an inheritance kept for us by God's power. Doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, that we will persevere even through horrible times like this. The elect of God, those who are chosen in Christ, those who have come to Christ, have been saved, will persevere. They can't lose their salvation. You can't lose it. All these Christs will be rising up. Whether it's the Christ of these false times or the Christ of Mormonism or the Christ of the Jehovah Witnesses or even the Christ of the Catholic Church. You say, well, can can believers come to Christ and then be deceived into following a false Christ? I would say no. John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and I know them. See, if somebody defects to another Christ, what I believe is they never knew the real Christ. They never had a relationship with the real Christ. Because once you know the true Christ, once you're truly saved, you can't be fooled. The elect are protected. They can't be destroyed. They can't be deceived. Because God's sovereign hand is upon them. And here he's reorganizing the whole universe so that they are not deceived, that they're protected. So he's saying, don't listen to these people. They come out and say, oh, here he is, there he is. Don't, don't, don't buy into that lie. We have a responsibility to believe not. See, I've told you beforehand this is going to happen, verse 26. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness. Don't go out there. They'll slaughter you as soon as they see you. Or you know what? Look, look, he's in the inner room. He's in a special place in Jerusalem. Come on into the city. We'll show you the Messiah. We know where he's at. Don't go there. Don't believe it. Well, how are they going to know when he comes? How will they know? They're out hiding in a cave somewhere. How will they know? What's going to be the revelation of the Messiah? It's going to be unmistakable. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he comes with clouds. And then it says this, And every eye will what? See him. Every eye will see him. See, you're not going to miss it. I'm not, nobody's going to miss this. These people that are here on earth are not going to miss it when the Messiah, they could be in the the furthest cave in the darkest place, but you know what? They're not going to miss the Messiah's coming. In Revelation chapter 19, he comes blasting out of heaven, riding on a white horse, followed by all the white-robed saints and angels of heaven's glory, coming to earth with a sword in his hand, a blood spattered garment to bring judgment on the world and to destroy all the armies who've set themselves against him. I mean, when he comes, you're going to know it. They're going to know it. We're not going to be here. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be with him. So. But he says, when you see this sign, when you see this abomination of desolation, verse 15, man, you better start running. You better run fast. Get away from there as soon as you can. Go into the caves. Go wherever. God will protect you. And you just hang out there until you know when the Messiah is coming back. It says in verse 27, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as to the west. Have you ever been in your house at night and you've seen a lightning storm outside? I mean, it's pretty intense. You know, you can even draw your shades and you can still see it. You know, a little flash, like a little strobe thing going on outside. 
It doesn't have to be right over your house. I remember when I was flying back to Florida one time to visit Crystal and the, and the kids, we were, had to, the plane had to go around this huge storm, thunderstorms. I remember looking out, I actually got video of it, looking out the window and seeing the whole horizon. I mean, as far as you could see, just light up. Just all of a sudden, just like a giant strobe light, and then it'd go black, go dark, and then another one, and another one. Bolts of lightning. And it was night, and the whole plane would just light up when this lightning happened. You know, that's going to be a display of his coming that will be known to all. We'll see it clearly. And then he speaks of the devastation that will come as he comes to judge. It says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. And you say, well, what, what's that? Kind of almost like a little proverb throws in there. Have you ever seen roadkill out on the road? You see birds picking at it, those, those vultures. That's the idea. Israel has vultures over there, birds. And Christ is going to come, as it were, a vulture to a dead carcass. The world is going to be so corrupt, beloved, it's going to be so sinfully corrupt that it lies there like a, like a dead animal alongside of the road. And birds are just going to be picking it apart. And the Lord will come in judgment and tear and rip and shred that carcass into pieces. It's a very vivid picture. As he meets out his judgment on this sin-filled earth. So that's where we're at. Now, there's one more thing that we want to share. That happens after this. It says in verse 29, immediately. But we're going to do that next week, so you have to come back. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can rely on its truthfulness. Lord, that this is not just the word of one of your prophets or one of your children. This is the word of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's giving us warning of what will be coming down the road. And Lord, we're called to be warned of this this horrible time that will come when these people of God will have to flee out of Judea into your divine protection. But Lord, this should motivate us as believers to warn those around us. Father, you don't want to, we don't want people to leave this earth. We don't want people to be ushered into eternity that is Christless that is godless, that is dark, that is filled with punishment and torment. We don't want that. And your word says you don't want that either. You desire for all to come to salvation. So Lord, we we pray that we would make this gospel message evident to those in our sphere of influence, whether it's at work, whether it's in our family, whether it's neighbors or friends, Lord, that we'd be willing to share with them the good news of the gospel. Because really, Lord, what we're talking about here is the judgment of God falling on a sin-filled earth. Lord, we have to understand that same judgment will fall on a sin-filled heart without Christ. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we would be motivated to share the good news of Christ, his forgiveness, his love, that we could see many come to Christ, that we would proclaim the gospel throughout the whole world. And Lord, we pray for 
those who may not have followed you, maybe those who have not put their faith, their trust in you at this time. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in their heart. Lord, that you would break them. Father, that you would cause them to become undone. That you would cause them to realize their only hope of salvation is to reach out, to grab a hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he's done for us on the cross. We can't do this on our own. We can't save ourselves. Lord, your word says that you set your love divinely upon us. Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ. They would cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Free me from the burden of this sin. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.